Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Good evening. Welcome to episode 000032 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James. I'll be your host through to eight this evening. I'd like to start off, as always, by acknowledging the traditional owners from where I'm broadcasting, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and I pay my respects to any of the mob that might be out there listening today. It's been a bit of a big day here in Victoria, but we'll uh, get to that later. It's good to be with you this Tuesday evening. We have another interesting and informative show ready for you. But I guess before we get to that, an Aboriginal woman is 45 times more likely to experience domestic violence than a non-Aboriginal woman. Tragically, that rate could be much higher in some areas of the country. Now, obviously, I don't need to tell you about the flow-on effects of domestic violence, the impact it has on the victim, their families, their children and their community. But it is fair to say that these startling rates of domestic violence are more than a cause for alarm and are, in fact, a stain on this country. So over the years, the Aboriginal community has created a number of organisations and shelters that have responded to this crisis where there hasn't been a response by anyone else. And one such organisation has been the National Family Violence Prevention and Legal Services Forum, which is the peak body for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander victim slash survivors of domestic violence. It is comprised of 13 member organisations across Australia who are service providers under the Family Violence Prevention Legal Service Program. The FVPLS provides specialist, culturally safe legal services and supports to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander victims or survivors of family violence right across the nation. And they've been doing it on a shoestring budget, a budget of $244,000 per annum, which they get from the federal government. Well, as of last week, that funding has been cut. It is no more as things stand at the moment. That uh, forum won't exist. The government is suggesting that it's just suspending the funding while they go through a consultation around the country to come up with some sort of co-design process. It's all just sort of your typical sort of public service jargon. It would seem that it's more important to spend $50 million on a fake reenactment of Captain Cook's circumnavigation of Australia, which, of course, he never did. Or maybe, you know, the government's priorities is on arming coppers at the country's airports to fund crack teams of AFP officers to be armed with short-barrelled rifles to prevent a threat that may or may not happen. I think in the country's history there's been one such incident, and that was, um, I think, a couple of bikies being shot up in uh, uh, Sydney Airport, maybe over 10 years ago. But, you know, it's obviously a priority for the government to scare the bejesus out of travellers and tourists alike. And that'll cost $107 million. 
what cost $108,000 was the Minister for Indigenous Affairs, one of his advisors, spending that on travel over the course of a 12-month period. In fact, the Indigenous Affairs Minister, Ken Wyatt, has spent $750,000, his staff have, on travel in the last 18 months, but they can't find $244,000 for a vital service like this. See, whereas domestic violence is an epidemic which is destroying lives day in, day out, the government's warped sense of priorities means they're really only come to, you can really only come to one conclusion, and that is, you know, unfortunately, the Morrison government doesn't seem to care about the voices of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women and their children. So we'll follow this story in the coming weeks and months as we go along. Um, and if you want to actually do something about it, if you actually want to follow and find out what's actually happening day in, day out, go to social media, probably Twitter's the best place, and follow the hashtag, hashtag v, v, uh, FVPLS, FVPLS, and you'll find out what the latest movements are in relation to that service. But on tonight's show, shortly I'll be joined on the line by fellow Yorta Yorta man, Ian Ham. Ian is the chair of the Stolen Generations Reference Group in the Healing Foundation. And they've put together a resource to assist GPs when training patients from the Stolen Generation. So we'll speak to him about that and find out what the GO is. And in the second half of the show, the Victorian Treaty Advancement Commissioner, Jill Gallagher, will join me on the line to talk about today's inaugural meeting of the First Peoples Assembly of Victoria, the elected representative body now charged with taking us into the next phase of the treaty process. So as always, the best way to get in touch with me is via Twitter. My handle is at Mr DT James. So hurry up with the dishes and stick around for the next hour. This is the mission. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organization in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. You're listening to The Mission on Triple R 102.7 FM. Um, to our first guest, between, between 1910 and the 1970s, approximately one in ten Aboriginal children were forcibly removed from their families, communities and culture and placed in institutions or adopted by non-Indigenous families under government policies of the day. Many of their stories were well documented in the Bringing Them Home report of the National Inquiry into the Separation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Children from their families way back in 1997. So on top of that grief and suffering caused by the removal, stolen, stolen children were often subjected to harsh and degrading treatment including abuse, exploitation and racism. Many were also denied proper education, although maybe sometimes never an education at all. The trauma of these experiences continues to affect stolen generation survivors, their descendants and communities today. The Healing Foundation has put together a resource aimed at assisting general practitioners. The Foundation Stolen Generations Reference Group chair is Ian Ham. Ian is a fellow Yorta Yorta man and actually a cousin of mine and has extensive government and community sector experience, particularly at executive and governance levels. Ian has overseen many major policy and strategic reforms for government and community organisations 
with his work with the Australian government, Victorian government, and in the community sector. And Ian is on the line now. Ian, welcome back to the mission. Good evening, Daniel. First of all, tell us about the um, the Healing Foundation. What, what what does the Healing Foundation do? Okay, so the Healing Foundation was set up uh, 10 years ago um, and basically it was set up to deal with a lot of the trauma that exists in the broader Aboriginal community and the broader Aboriginal community. As you would appreciate, um, our communities across Australia are in a whole bunch of different circumstances, but we have such things as, you know, there's... there's uh, communities where violence is a problem, where there's social unrest, where there's just tension. Um, You have such things as displaced children, uh, domestic violence, all those type of things. The Healy Foundation doesn't deal directly with all those, but what we try to do is support communities find their own way forward, how to heal their own uh, problems, um, how to bring general community rest, I suppose, uh, to a state of unrest that we have in Aboriginal communities across Australia. Uh, that's what it does more broadly, the, yeah. the Healing Foundation. It does specifically, though, focus on uh, the disruption to the Aboriginal community caused by the removal of children uh, from 1910 up until the 70s, so basically the Stolen Generations. And, you know, put it on the table, you're, you're a member of the Stolen Generation yourself. Um, yes, I am. Uh, so you're well-placed to... to produce a resource like this obviously um why why in particular did gps need assistance when dealing with patients from the stolen generations yeah look one of the things that we found with stolen generations people and i guess this it's exemplified or it's it's in it's a more sharper focus in the broader aboriginal community the reluctance of people to access general practitioner services or medical services um one of the issues with with accessing medical services so for example that's why we have aboriginal health services because aboriginal people by and large are reluctant to use non-aboriginal services this is actually heightened for stolen generations people who view who view medical practitioners or say dentists or say aged care services as we've worked on with these information sheets they're very hesitant to access them uh because their own hesitancy around authority figures for some people it's because it reminds them of the trauma they had during uh, their childhood, um, aged care services, for example, where it, where it can be residential, can remind a lot of people of the residential uh, care, residential places they were put in yeah. um, when they were children. So, so GP services is not immune to that. Um, and often, when people have to, just a simple thing is like having to describe where they're from, what's their background, what's their issue, what's their that. A lot of people actually find that really quite a difficult experience because uh, it requires them to tell their story again and again yeah. and again. And after a while, for a lot of stolen children, it just they just don't want to talk about it again. I mean, even in the in the Aboriginal community, and it was like we, um, you know, each one of us, uh, particularly here in Victoria and I guess South Australia, we have kind of like a really detailed mind map of. Um, where people are from, which which families are connected to which mob, um, and when you actually come across say a member of the of the stolen generations, it's um, something that you know you can actually stumble upon by accident by simply asking, "Here's your mob," you know, and and that can be that can be confronting even with our own within our own community. Oh, absolutely! That simple thing of "I'm not sure," I'm yeah, trying to find out, or yes, you can say you're from this family. And then people start throwing names at you and you're not really aware of them or you only marginally know them. That's quite confronting for people to deal with. Mm. Um, and also that sense of, you know, 
do I really belong? So to have that question, to have people ask about that repeatedly can wear people down. And the problem with, obviously, GPs doing it and dentists is it actually has a health implication for people because if they say, I just don't want to do this again, it means they're not just not talking about it. It also means there's the health implication of whatever ails them isn't being treated, so it's bad for their health. Yeah, you make an appointment and instead of going through the awkwardness or in some cases trauma of going through that lived experience again, it's probably just easier to stay at home and, you know, keep up your fluids. Yeah, I'm not going to the doctor. Yeah. I mean, I... I mean, um, yeah, it, it, it's something that it's something I can quite clearly understand people not doing. So, if we can provide information to general practitioners and to and to dentists and to aged care people to give them an understanding of why there is a group within a group, so the stolen generations community within the wider Aboriginal community, who have additional reluctance or have a more complex story. Um, that they really don't feel like they have to explain every time. If we can educate general practitioners and dentists about that, it not only it, it means our people can access services in a way that isn't as confronting, and it mm. actually makes them as service providers better service providers as well. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so you've you've actually put together, a, I guess, um, it's more than a fact sheet. It's a, it's a detailed sort of report on yeah. things to do and things yeah. to avoid. And, and yeah. one of the things that I that I um, was drawn to was, you know, in terms of advising GPs, and that is to avoid making assumptions. Yes, yeah. So, so that is one of the things I think that people do need to be aware of is don't make assumptions about people. You have to inquire as a medical practitioner to get a good diagnosis, but beyond that, you don't have to inquire too far, but you should also not make assumptions about a person. Um, it's a delicate balance that GPs... Uh, often have to confront every day but it's something which they need to be critically aware of and in relation to stolen generations people um, it's an additional set of complexities but I guess because it's complex doesn't mean we shouldn't doesn't mean we should shy away from it or indeed think it's too hard to to, to deal with in, in fact probably because we have people with complex backgrounds you need to put in the extra effort to to understand where they're coming from and you know the timing of the resource is actually critically important because by uh, 2023 all stolen generation survivors will be over the age of uh, 50 which yeah. means you know as with every segment of society but particularly in the aboriginal community uh, that the likelihood of a whole bunch of health factors or, or medical factors yeah. goes up over the age of 50. Oh absolutely it does so as people's people age, their, their health needs change, their health status generally starts to deteriorate because you just get older, you just wear out, you know, one yeah. way of putting it. Um, I, I think what it does say, though, Daniel, is that um, aged care services and the requirement for them is becoming more and more pronounced. So that's why we also looked at aged care services. I mean, I'm 55 and I'm at the younger end of the stolen generations, yeah. but stolen children. Um, apparently, I'm eligible for aged care services too, but I don't know how I feel. Well, I believe that. I believe that. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Ray. <laughs> but, but, but it means that aged care services for this particular group of Aboriginal people have to be done in a way that doesn't re-traumatise them. Um, because, as I said before, particularly residential aged care, um, that could be effectively putting people back into the situations they were in when they were children. That is, they're in a restrictive residential environment. That is that is controlled. Um, and to be honest, its track record at dealing with diversity and patient need isn't exactly what you'd call great. 
That's why we've got a Royal Commission on into the aged care sector at the moment. It's not because it was going swimmingly well. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't think I don't think that statement I've just made is news to anyone. So so if we can provide information to the aged care sector about what it needs to do, so it can best provide services to stolen children, then these fact sheets are a part of that process. So while I got you, you're a member. You're a member of the stolen generations. Um, yeah. Uh, Children these days, though, are, are being taken, you know, from out of home at a rate that's just yeah. as prevalent as it was, you know, in some instances at the height of the the stolen generations. Do you think that, you know, we've we've listed it that it's between nineteen ten and 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 the seventies? Would you say, and you know, you're you're in a very good place to to comment on this. Is it still happening? Are children being removed because? I guess I guess the essential difference is today, Daniel. This probably I'll get a bit controversial. Is that mm-hmm. between 1910 to the 1970s, children were removed solely on the basis that they were born Aboriginal, and for no other reason. Yep. There wasn't even the overlay of neglect. Although in the Victorian system, uh, children were charged with their own neglect, so there was a legal framework that could authorise the removal. So and we we had the um, we had the half caste act on top of that too. Yeah. So Uncle Larry Walsh. Now Larry doesn't mind talking about this. In fact, he drove the reform of this this uh, this uh, um, situation. He's he's had a he's had a criminal record or a charge against him since he was two years old. Yeah. He was charged with his own neglect. That was the legal basis that he was removed from his parents. It kind of makes a weird. I don't know how it worked, but it worked. So he's had he's had a police record since he was two years old. Uh, but fundamentally, the reason he was removed because he was born Aboriginal and that was it. Children today are being removed for reasons beyond just simply being born Aboriginal. Yep. Um, there is issues of their, their welfare. Uh, is there alternative accommodation within the family? So they're going to extended family and so forth. I'm not an expert on this. It is a very con- contentious and, and complex issue, but um, it, it is different to what it was uh, from that period, 1910 to the 1970s. Back then, as you mentioned, it was overt government policy. It was yeah. in, in black and the, white and legislated. Yeah. The, the idea was... It was based on the idea that the Aboriginal race is a dying race and we should smooth their... Should, we should smooth uh, their way to um, extinction. That was the fundamental premise yeah. of it. And that, that, was, that was up until the 1970s. Now... That is not the premise of, of anything. Everybody recognises the Aboriginal community is here, it's here to stay, it's stronger, it's growing, and it's and it's it's evolving for the 21st century. Um, so it's a different set of circumstances. Having said that, it doesn't matter what circumstances it is, a child disrupted from their natural home, which is with their parents and their family and so forth, is always going to be a child that has had a disruption in their childhood, and we need to accommodate and look after those children and hopefully get them back into the place they belong. Yeah, within their own culture, within their own families. Yeah. That's um, all the research in the world shows you. That's where a kid belongs, and, and it's particularly true of you know Aboriginal kids in terms of their culture and their connectedness to to their mob. It is twenty five past seven. You're listening to Triple R. This is the mission. My name's Daniel. I'm speaking with Ian Ham, who wears many hats, but um, I'm speaking to him in the, his current guise, which is as the chairperson of the Stolen Generations Reference Group for the Healing Foundation. Um, 
Well, well, I've got you. You've just, you've just stepped out of an Aboriginal housing um, meeting. Yeah. Um, uh, is there a housing crisis in Victoria for Aboriginal people? Oh, it's quite simple. I mean, I think I wouldn't say there's a crisis, but it, it's easy, it's clear to say that demand outstrips supply. It's yeah, right. Simple. I think. I think. Uh, I mean, we Aboriginal Housing Victoria owns over sixteen hundred properties. But the demand wait list is around the 5,000 mark, so, you know. Um, now, we work with state housing and other social housing providers to provide as much accommodation as we can. I guess the real issue for us, Daniel, is, is not only where we are at the moment, but what does the future look like? Yeah. So, Aboriginal Housing Victoria, we've been looking at what is our role as Aboriginal Housing Victoria. Is it simply to, prov- is it simply to try and alleviate uh, the, the, the problems of today... Or do we have a broader expanse to talk about, well, how do we move people into Aboriginal home ownership? Mm. How do we move people into the private sector in decent rental accommodation that they can afford, so on and so forth? So it's not simply just a case of social housing, but we should be looking at the long term, and that's what we're in fact doing. So in answer to your question, your first question, demand is outstripping supply. It's being managed at the moment, but sure, if you wanted to chuck me another 1,600 houses, take that. Um, but, but really, it's about where do we want Aboriginal people in terms of housing to be in a decade or in a generation from now. And that's, that's far more home ownership, far more in control of our own housing needs um, as individuals and as families. Uh, uh, rather than you know the situation we're in at the moment, and that's another one of um, uh, you know that's linked closely to another one of your um, passions, and that's like um, uh, educating uh, the community around um, financial security and you know economic mobility. Yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, for me, I think using the economy, using the economy to alleviate Aboriginal disadvantage is the key for the next decade next generation. So home ownership is quite clearly linked to that. So as we have more Aboriginal people engaging in the economy, particularly younger people, how do we support them to make the most out of that um, vis-a-vis the money they make so that they can uh, save it, they can invest it, they can uh, build wealth and own capital. And when we say capital, that means housing. How do we support our community do that? So using the economy to, to... uh, alleviate a lot of our situations because, I mean, basically, I mean, there is this thing of if you're cashed up, a lot of your social problems disappear. It's just a simple rule across society that you'll see anywhere. How do we cash up our own people? Um, and that's getting into the economy and therefore we can buy housing, so on and so forth. Yep. Well, um, how many... Uh, I asked you last time, how many how many different hats are you wearing at any given time? Uh Far too many. <laughs> and on top of that, you're a, you're a television um, television celebrity. I um I saw you on the uh, television the other week. Yeah, I believe you and I have been on the same show on the Friday Fix with uh, Patricia Cavellis. Yeah, uh, available on iView. Yeah, it's available on iView. Just look it up, people. You'll see us there. Um, but it's really good, actually. One of that things that's showing. So you being on it, I was on it. I do some stuff with Raf Epstein occasionally. People are asking Aboriginal people about things beyond just Aboriginal topics. They're seeing us as as being able to contribute to wider discussion, but bringing our Aboriginal perspective to it. I think that's actually a really important thing at the moment. I think it is too. Locked in this little space of, oh, it's Aboriginal and that's all they know about. In fact, saying to people, the Aboriginal community has a lot more to contribute um, 
to the wider society and has relevant views and brings a new perspective to a whole range of different things going on that isn't necessarily just about them. That's, that's why me being on that program, you being on it, that shows that the ABC is looking to expand the understanding of Aboriginal people in the wider Australian environment, and that's a great thing. Yeah, I've made the comment on this show a number of times. I personally believe that the broader Australian community, despite the the very sad state of our politics, particularly federally, is more open now to hear Aboriginal voices than it ever has been. And I, I think that's beginning to see. We're seeing it in the literary world. We're seeing it in the media. We're seeing it in the theatre. We're seeing it in movies. We're seeing it on television. So, you know, there is cause to be to be optimistic about being heard at the very least. Yeah, and, and for Aboriginal people want, wanting to have their voice heard on things outside uh, uh, outside subjects directly related to us ourselves. So I think there is that expansion going on, um, but quite often, as you said, Daniel, uh, it's a matter of uh, politics catching up to where the people are, not the other way around. On so many issues right now. Yeah, and we yeah. talk about that all night, but we won't. Um, if people want to find out more about this resource, you can actually just yeah. go to the Healing Foundation website, so healingfoundation.org.au, and look for the Working with Stolen Generations uh, resource. So if you're a health practitioner out there or a health professional, uh, just head to the Healing Foundation uh, website. I'll let you get back to your meeting, Ian, but thank you so much for your time yet again. Not a problem, Daniel. Always good to have a chat. Take care. Triple R. So much talent in our community. Um, that's always a great thing to do is get down to that Cullen uh, Ballot Narum Festival held on um, Invasion Day, as we in the community know it. It's fantastic. Um, so much entertainment, and it just seems to get bigger and bigger every year. You're listening to The Mission on Triple R. Now, today has been an historic day in this place that we now know as Victoria. The inaugural meeting of the First Peoples Assembly of Victoria was held today in the Victorian Parliament in the uh, Legislative Council Chamber, if I'm not mistaken. The woman that, after listening to mob from all over the state and was largely responsible for getting us to this point, is Jill Gallagher A.O., Jill is a Gunditjmara woman from Western Victoria. She's obviously a highly respected Aboriginal leader who has dedicated her life to advocating for the Victorian Aboriginal community. She's spent well over, well, maybe just a little bit over the last 20 years advancing Aboriginal health and wellbeing through her work with the uh, Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation. But in her most, real, most recent role, she has been the Victorian Treaty Advancement Commissioner. She was there today. She's coming back to the show she's now a friend of a show because it's the actual third time that she's appeared on the show jill gallagher welcome back to the mission thank you daniel jane it's my pleasure to be here now you've had a very big day a very big day indeed um uh, yeah. describe today's events what what actually went down well, what went down today was um, in the beginning of the meeting, the first half of the meeting was mainly Victorian cultures on display. Um, we dressed the chamber um, uh, over the weekend um, um, to make it our chamber. Yep. And um, um, the First Peoples uh, Assembly met today and came together conducted ceremony. Um, then in the afternoon, um, we uh, elected 
the uh, executive mm-hmm. of the First People's Assembly of Victoria. And then out of the uh, executive, they elected their co-chairs. Right. Now, who are those co-chairs? Co-chair, uh, one of the co-chairs is Marcus Stewart. Mm-hmm. I saw him um, on the live stream in a very deadly um, possum skin cloak. Yes, uh, yes, as I said, the, we made the chamber ours. <laughs> Great. Uh, <laughs> and um, the other co-chair uh, is a well-respected um, uh, elder, um, um, Geraldine Atkinson. Okay, yep. That's, uh, anyone who's mob out there knows who Geraldine is. She's um, been heavily involved in the Aboriginal community in a number of um, roles, but ma- mainly, I would say, as um, in a role as um, a chairperson of AI for such a long time, the Victorian Aboriginal Education Association Incorporated. Um, so, what was the process today? So, you said that they um, elected an executive. What was what was involved in that? Well, basically, uh, we were we took nominations. Um uh, over the past couple of weeks, people could email in so they're interested, mm-hmm. the elected members. Yep. We also, the Constitution also, the First People's Assembly a Constitution also allows for uh, to receive nominations from the four. Um, so the outgoing interim board was Eleanor Burke, who, who chaired today... Um, and also uh, Vicky Clark and Dan Turnbull. Um, and so um, um, it was really exciting to see uh, Eleanor, who's been involved for a long time. Um, to And so the process was to... We called for nominations from the floor. Look, off the top of my head, don't, don't quote me on this, Daniel, but I think we had something like 24 nominations for a board of nine. Right, okay. Yeah, which was really exciting. Which is great because everyone's putting their hand up. Yes, that, it is so exciting. And um, so elections were held. It was um, secret ballot and it was also uh, preferential voting. Um, so that and um, looking for gender balance in that uh, voting yeah. process. Really important. So really exciting. Very exciting. I think the end result was quite a, a, um, um, a pretty spread of um, uh, male and uh, female elected members, which was really good. That's great because there's uh, with within Aboriginal community and Aboriginal culture, there are you know uh, particular issues that are you know not gender neutral, but they are particular to to each of the sexes. So it's really important to get that uh, gender balance with things like this. Yeah. Yeah, oh, very much so. Um, even in, in the, the normal, oh, not the normal, even in our general elections that were that elected the First People's Assembly of Victoria, um, we had a gender uh, quota there also. Um, but you know what? We didn't have to use it, Daniel. Yeah, that's brilliant. That is, yeah, absolutely... it is good. It really is good. It says a lot for our communities here in Victoria. What was the, what was the feeling like in the chamber? Ah. Look, in, in, in the early days, there was mixed feelings of having um, our inaugural meeting in Parliament. Yep. Um, and, you know, um, I have to admit, not everyone was happy with that. The majority were. Um, 
But, you know, a lot of the, um, the, the, the members were talking today about, yes, this was a building that was used to make some horrific decisions, um, you know, for a, cu- a couple of hundred years. Yep. So it is, you know, and it did bring up some trauma for some people. And um, it, it became quite emotional. But at the same time, um, elected members were also saying, we no longer want to be on the fringe. Mm. We don't want to be fringe dwellers. Yeah. See, I... I, 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 I sorry. Yeah. I can I can understand how people might find it a traumatic experience, but I, I can understand better the the symbolism, the 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 need to bring this process back into the heart of Victoria's democracy. And at this stage of things, I think it sends a massive signal not only to the mob but to the Victorian community more broadly to say, okay, this is a treaty process, and we're kicking this off now in the heart of our democracy. Exactly. Yeah, exactly right. And we're 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 taking over this chamber for the next two days. This is ours. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So I mean, it was a good feel. It was a great vibe, um, and uh, everyone was very excited to be there. And every member of the assembly did what we would term in uh, you know a normal sort of parliamentary sense uh, a a maiden speech. They certainly did, and I don't know how many of your listeners. Um, logged on today to listen to those maiden speeches. You could have done it through Facebook. You could have done it through the First People's Assembly website as well. That's correct. Um, But I got to be in the chamber to listen to all the maiden speeches. And I'm sitting there like the, you know, like like the proud parent. The Cheshire cat. Uh, Yeah, that's exactly right. (laughs) Um, I'm sitting there thinking... Ah, treaties are in good hands. Because, let's be honest, it has been at times a very arduous process for you in particular, but being the face of this, did you feel as though all that pressure and all that hard work and, you know, some of the criticism that, you know, you copped as you get a cop through a process like this was all worth it today? Oh, very much so. I mean, it did take its toll. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, on my, my on my spiritual well-being. Yep. Uh, I mean, myself um, and members of my team. You know, mm-hmm. we, we did we did cop the brunt of some of the um, trauma that still exists in our community. Sure. Um, and I understand that, but it doesn't help with you as an individual. So, no. Um, you know, uh, but it was uh, looking back. Uh, I'll do it all over again. Now, it's over. It's now over to the, the First People's Assembly to start the ball rolling on, you know, you know, proper treaty negotiations. Is yeah. There's there's people from, from mobs from all across Victoria, and we're optimistic at the moment that this will be done in a, in a positive way, but we also need to be mindful that, like happened to you, that we don't actually take any differences we have out on each other in, in the form of lateral violence. So are you confident that that will not happen or, or be at least minimised? I actually am very confident, and I'll tell you why, and I'm, I hope I'm not breaching Assembly's confidence here, but I do need to tell you because um, I witnessed it today in the chamber where there was no live streaming, by the way. Mm-hmm. 
um, I witnessed um, uh, an important decision that had to be made in the chamber because, um, uh, and I won't go into detail, but mm-hmm. there was a, um, um, the, um, <clears throat> we had, to, there was a, there was, anyway, there were some challenges with a particular outcome of a, of a um, election, uh, one of the elections we had. Yep. Because uh, we had a um, um, couple of elections, by the way. Anyways, um, but I witnessed every elected member in that chamber today negotiate, put up the pros and cons of a, of, of a way forward in this particular matter. I watched some members have a different point of view but I watched people not saying it, but automatically saying, well, you know what, I can live with that. Yeah. And they ended up making a decision, a way forward out of this dilemma we had. I, I think that's one of the things about, about our community, uh, Jill Kelliger, Victorian Treaty Advancement Commissioner, is we're so used to being pragmatic. And so we take the long view and... What you've just described bodes very well for um for that process. Exactly. So again, I'm sitting there witnessing the debate, the discussion, and a solution. Even though there was many views in that room, and the respect to each other that was demonstrated, and I'm sitting there thinking, well, you know, their behaviour was uh, a lot better than a lot of politicians I've seen. Well, that's um, yeah. I mean, were there, were there actually any politicians standing around having a, having a bit of a look? No, 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 no. Yeah, they could have perhaps learned a thing or two, eh? They probably could have learned a thing or two, <laughs> but um, yes, the assembly actually that was a private business, so yeah, to conduct a bit of business without government looking on. So, is the idea now once we've got this inaugural meeting at the way that? The um, the assembly will move around the place and have meetings um, elsewhere. I would hope so. Um, I would certainly. Yeah, that was only the very first in all. Yeah, the assembly might decide never to go back there again. Yeah, um, the assembly might decide to travel the meetings around the state. Yeah, and the, uh, but the great thing about it, it's their decision. It's their decision now. So, exactly right. what next for you? What's happening with you? Oh, uh, Daniel, I'm, I'm taking a bit of a rest. Yeah, you need it. So, as commissioner, is uh, January the 13th. Great. Um, I'm doing a little bit of a handover with the incoming uh, chairs and board. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I will do that, um, some of it tomorrow, and then the following week, and then after Christmas. Yep. Um, and then I'm done and dusted, and the assembly's up and running. And well, they, there is a transition, yep. um, but I'm not involved in that transition. Um, there's some of the decisions that the assembly have to make um, tomorrow, actually. No, basically, you've you've done what you were charged to do, and you've done it very well. You've done it yes. through um, a lot of tumult, um, a lot of pressure, but you've done it. So that's cause for yes. celebration. It certainly is, and I think. Aboriginal people right across the state should feel very proud of all our communities. Because every community has touched um, and helped shape the way the Assembly looks. Yeah, an extensive, an extensive um, 
consultation process that happened over a number of years and it came to fruition today. Will the will tomorrow's proceedings be um, live streamed as well? Well, see, um, I would hope so, but it's not my decision. It's the incoming. It's the board now, not the incoming. They're here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, bo- the board is here, and the chairs. So in the morning, I'm having an early morning meeting with the um, the chairs um, and the executive to actually, you know, do they want like the agenda that we've put together? Do they want to tweak it? Do they want to start again? And whatever you want to do, do you want it live streamed? Yeah, fantastic. Well, I'll let you go. Um, Put your feet up. Well done. Um, Thanks for coming back on the show and have a great Christmas and New Year's if that's what you're doing. Thank you, Daniel, and you too. Thanks, Jill. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.